Well, good morning. This week, lesson two of Hebrews. So please take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter one. And when you find that, if you are able, please stand with me as we read God's word today. We're going to read Hebrews chapter one, verses one through 14, though we'll be focusing on verses four through 14 this morning. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Lord God, we thank you for your word today, which is strong and powerful. We pray, Lord, you would speak to us today, Lord. Use it to, to make us the people you want us to be. And we pray you'd open our eyes that we would see whatever you have for us today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And please be seated. Well, how many of you kind of disengage when you get to this passage? Anyone? You read the first three verses, then you go on autopilot until you get to verse 14, and then start in at chapter 2? I'm kind of like that with angels I've got to confess to you they are not my favorite subject, partly because of how they're portrayed culturally and also how uh, believers often misrepresent them. I will tell you this, though. God changed my heart this week towards angels. Now, I go back 20 years on this one. Back when I was in seminary, uh, back in about 1985, one of my professors gave us an assignment, and he said, take the book of Hebrews... And trace the doctrine of angels, the teaching of angels, just through the book of Hebrews. And it was an amazing study. 
you go through the book of Hebrews and, and find out everything it says about angels and then categorize that and organize it. But I will tell you that in the last 20 years, my thoughts have not landed very often upon angels. Uh, but I will say that God changed my perspective this week as a result of this study and going through life as I was studying this. Now, angels cannot be ignored in this passage. And as we know, the superiority of Jesus in the first three verses of Hebrews has been clearly shown. He is seen to be supreme over everything. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 showed Jesus as the heir of all things, the creator, God, the son of God in time and space, the exact representation of God, the sustainer of all things, the savior, the Lord. Last week we saw that he is the prophet that God spoke through and the priest that made the final sacrifice for sins and the king that reigns forever. But now in verses 4 through 14, the writer of Hebrews gets even more specific, showing in detail how Jesus is better than angels. And beginning in verse 5, he uses seven Old Testament passages to make that point. But first, I want us to look at verse 4 and uh, a few questions that that raises. The first thing is, what does the Bible say about angels? Verse 4 reads, that Jesus became much better than angels because he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, in the Bible, there are over 100 references to angels in the Old Testament, over 160 references to angels in the New Testament. So the Bible has plenty to say. I'm just going to give you a sampling uh, right now. The first thing I want to point out about angels is that they are created beings, and they are not human One of the things that bugs me the most is when someone says, you know, uh, so-and-so died and now they're an angel in heaven. That's not possible. Angels are not human. They are created beings. They are spirit beings that God has created. Another thing is, though, they are able to appear in human form. They can take the form of a person. In fact, Hebrews 13 verse 2 says, Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers because some have entertained angels unaware, not knowing that they were entertaining angels. It points back to Genesis chapter 18 and 19 with Abraham and Lot. Both of them showed hospitality to strangers who ended up being angels that God had sent Another thing is that, that angels, and, and this is a common one that we know, they rejoice when a sinner comes to faith in Christ. Luke 15.10 says, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And angels can speak. In fact, in Galatians, in chapter 1, Paul was giving a, a word of warning. In fact, We know that scripturally, angels were often used by God uh, to speak his message. But there were also fallen angels that would uh, pervert the message of the gospel. And so Paul in Galatians 1 said this in verse 6, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting 
Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And listen to what he says in verse 8. But even if we or an angel of heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. So angels can speak. Sometimes they speak what is right, and sometimes they speak what is wrong. They also are plentiful. Uh, Both in Daniel and in Revelation, we read of thousands upon thousands of angels, myriads of angels. Some of these angels have fallen, but there are many uh, holy ones who remain. And they're more powerful than humans. Ephesians 6.10 says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. And it goes on to say that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, against the forces. And what that is pointing to is fallen angels that we battle against. Hebrews 2.9 indicates that angels are actually higher than humans. It says that Jesus, when he became man, was made a little lower than angels for a little while. Angels are stronger, and they are higher than fallen man. They're also organized. Their ranks are called thrones and dominions and principalities and powers, authorities. The scriptures tell us of cherubim and seraphim. Some of them are named, some of the angels, uh, Lucifer. Satan's name before he fell. We also know of the angel Gabriel and of Michael, who is the captain of the armies of heaven. There's a purpose of angels. Their purpose is to serve God and to do his will. In fact, verse 14 tells us, they are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation for believers. God used them to bring his word in the Old Testament often to mankind. They were his authoritative messengers. They were the mediators of the covenant. But why did the writer of Hebrews need to point out that Jesus is better than angels? Why would this have to be said? The reason is because the Jews had some twisted ideas about angels. Many of their views didn't jive with Scripture due to ideas propagated by their rabbis as well as the Talmud, who, which for the Jews was the source of many, many of their laws that had been added. And the writer of the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, had to write this letter with a biblical view of angels in mind, but also with the twisted view of angels in mind as an error to correct. In fact, some of the things Jews believed about angels are pretty interesting. They believed that God didn't ever do anything without first asking angels, kind of getting the permission of angels, almost like they were the Senate. In fact, in in Genesis 1.26, when he says, let us make man in our image, the Jews thought that us was referring to the angels. Also, they thought that angels disagreed with the creation of man and some were annihilated because of it. 
Some thought that angels were opposed to the giving of the law and that they actually attacked Moses on the way up uh, Mount Sinai. The Jews gave names to angels that the scriptures did not give. In fact, they believed that there were angels that controlled almost every aspect of human life. That angels controlled the calendar and controlled the oceans and the stars and the wind and the rain. In fact, they believed that there were angels that wrote down every word that people spoke. That's a scary thought. And they also believed that there was a guardian angel for every country, every person. Some rabbis even taught that there was an angel for every blade of grass. That's how uh, wrapped up they were in angels. There were some people that took that even a step further and worshipped angels. Now, it's true that angels... uh, ministered between God and mankind to carry on the work of the Old Covenant. But some Jews actually exalted angels to the point that they actually began to worship them. Now this was connected to Gnosticism, which was a heresy that included the claim that Jesus was an angel. The Colossian church was mixed up in Gnosticism. So much so that Paul needed to warn them. And in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16, he said this. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And then in verse 18, he says this. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, asceticism basically, and the worship of angels. In fact, what he's saying is if someone's worshiping angels, they are defrauding you of what God intends for you. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews basically showed that Jesus is the mediator Of a better covenant. So he also had to show that Christ is a better mediator than the mediators of the old covenant. Who were angels. Now there's another question that's attached to verse 4. And it's, it's interesting. It's basically this. How did Jesus inherit a better name? And become better than angels? Some people use that verse to say, hey look. Jesus isn't God. He was created. He became this. And we really have to look at the Greek words here because the Greek word translated made here is not poieo, which means to be created. It is ginomai, which means to become. And what it's pointing to, the verb became here, is pointing to Jesus while he was on earth. It refers to a change of state, not a change of existence. He is said to have become better than the angels because of his exalted position. Wasn't he always better, though? Wasn't he always better from eternity past? Of course. 
But again, we're talking about Jesus, uh, God incarnate, as he came to earth and took the form of a man. The Son, obviously, has eternally existed, but only as God incarnate, only as God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, from the time of his appearance onward. In fact, again, in chapter 2, verse 9, where it states that he was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, while he was here on earth. And then afterwards, he was exalted to a far greater position because of the finished work of redemption that he had accomplished. If you want to look more uh, later on, look in Philippians 2. Philippians 2 kind of sheds more light on this truth. Verses 5 through 8 pictures Jesus humbling himself by taking the form of a bondservant, uh, humbling himself by going to the cross. And then verses 9 through 11 picture his exalted position uh, by the Father after his work of redemption. But God highly exalted him. It points to his uh, resurrection, his ascension. It also points to his position, as we saw last week, at the right hand of the throne of God. But it also points to something else. His present work of intercession on our behalf. What he is doing right now on our behalf. The fact that Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God shows that he is better than angels. No angel ever gets that distinction. Now, how did Jesus inherit a better name than the angels? It's due to the name that he bears. But what name? What name are we talking about when it says that he has inherited a better name? Is it the name Jesus? No. It's the name Son. Son. Jesus inherited the title Son as he inherits everything. And verse 2 says that he's the heir of all things. By the Father's eternal decision, by his will. And his name is much better than the angels because he is God's son. Now his name was his before the foundation of the world. It was his during his time on earth. Chapter 5 and verse 8 in Hebrew says, Though he was a son, he learned obedience by what he suffered. But again, before time began, it was his name as well. Chapter 1, verse 2, God has spoken to us in his Son through whom he created the world. Now, that does sound a little confusing, but the fact is this. Angels are collectively called sons of God in a generic sense. But only one is called the Son of God, with a capital S, and that's Jesus. And the name Son, for Jesus, it pictures the submission of the second person of the Godhead to the first person of the Godhead, the Father, in fulfilling their plan of redemption that was made before the world began. Now, how specifically is Jesus better than angels? And that's what verses 5 through 14 show. Now, 13 times in the book of Hebrews, the comparative adjective better is used in relation to Jesus and what came before him. He is superior in dignity and worth and in power. And the idea of saying that Jesus is better, and 13 times, we'll see this as we go through the book, that what came before him on earth, he is better than but better in the sense of more powerful. 
That's kind of what's being signified. So the first thing we see is he is better by virtue of his sonship, which we've just looked at. That his relationship to the father is such that his sonship shows that he is better. Verse 5 is the first, contains the first of seven Old Testament quotations. This first one is from Psalm 2, verse 7. It says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, I want to make it, mention one thing, too, about the writer of Hebrews using quotations from the Old Testament. When he quotes the Old Testament, he does not quote the Hebrew Old Testament. He quotes the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, which was written sometime around the Christ's time by 70 Jewish scholars. There were a lot of Greek-speaking Jews in those days. And so the writer of Hebrews quotes the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is why if you flipped back and, and went, okay, let's look at these, not every one of the Old Testament quotations will be exactly word for word in your Old Testament uh, and in Hebrews. But the meaning does not change. Some of the words change from Greek to Hebrew. But the meaning stays the same. But this first quotation, Psalm 2, 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you, signifies that Jesus has a better name. That the angels then, if Jesus has the better name and a higher name, the angels uh, obviously have a lesser name. That he is superior, that he is more powerful. And these words from Psalm 2, they seem to suggest the words used at a coronation of a king. The words used at a coronation of a king during King David's time. They also remind us of what God the Father said of God the Son in Mark chapter 1 verse 11. He said, you are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. Now there's a second quotation in verse 5. It's from 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 14. Now, these words are the words that God gave Nathan to speak to David when David wanted to build God a house. But God, as you remember, did not want a house from David. God wanted to build David a house that would last forever. Now, after David's death, his son Solomon would build a house for God. And later prophets, though, looked forward to a greater son of David in whom the promises would be realized. Jesus is that greater son of David. Jesus is the son of God, therefore no angel could ever be. There's another reason why Jesus is better. He's better by virtue of his kingship. The fact that he is reigning over all things. In verse 6 we read that all the angels of God are to worship him. This is the third quotation. Now it could be from Psalm 97 verse 7. It also could be from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. There's some similarities with both. Now, in Deuteronomy, it's the last part of the Song of Moses. And it says, let the sons of God worship him. Again, the collective generic group of the sons of God, as the angels were sometimes called. Jesus is worshipped by angels. That makes it clear that angels should be worshiping Jesus and that it leaves no room for people to worship angels. In fact, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, the very last 
chapter of the Bible. John is recounting something that happened to him. He had been shown the river of life. He had seen things that no one else had been privileged to see. And the person who was talking to him, which was the angel of God, said to him, these words are faithful and true. Verse 6. And he said, the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And then Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Then John recounts something that happened. He says it this way. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And he tells what he did when he heard and when he saw. He said, when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And then in verse 9, we see the angel's response. He said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. You see, angels do not want to be worshipped. They are worshippers of God. Now, the reference in verse 6 to firstborn is also interesting. It's probably from Psalm 89, verse 27, where God says of David, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of all the kings of the earth. Now, Jesus is the firstborn. It refers to his position. It doesn't refer to the order of his birth. It signifies the incarnation, when he came and took the form of a human. And it also it signifies his enthronement as king. Obviously, he was not the first person ever to be born on earth. But he has the highest position of power. Jesus is also better by virtue of the purpose of angels. Angels serve at God's pleasure. In verse 7, we see the fourth quotation. It's from Psalm 104, and it says, Of the angels, God says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. It shows the angels' place in God's order. It shows that no matter how high angels are, no matter how great they are, they are far inferior to the place of superiority occupied by Jesus. Uh, He calls the angels winds and fire. It could mean that they execute God's will as quickly as wind does and as quickly as fire does. It could also mean that they can take the form of wind or fire. But whatever the case, Jesus is the Lord of the elements. Angels serve Jesus. There's another reason why he's better. He's better by virtue of his anointing. He's anointed as the prophet, as the priest, as the king. In verses 8 and 9, we see the fifth quote, which is from Psalm 45. And it's contrasted with the former quote. It pictures a royal wedding. It says, thy throne, O God, is forever. But it talks of a bridegroom. And the bridegroom being the prince of the house of David. Think about God's kingdom. Think about Christ's kingdom. Christ's kingdom is the only one characterized by perfect righteousness. It says the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. 
You have loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions, which would be something that would happen at a royal wedding. His anointing with the oil of gladness is really an expression of the joy that God has blessed him with in acknowledgement that God's justice has been served in the sacrifice of Christ. In Hebrews 12, 3, we read that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He despised that shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, what does it mean, his companions? It says his companions are around him, and he is anointed with his oil of gladness above them. Well, the companions here are not the angels. It's someone else. Who could it be? It's us. We are those companions being named. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. It says that it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. So we're called sons from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. These companions are those who are born again. And that every created thing is subject to Jesus, the anointed one, even angels. There's another reason why Jesus is better. He is better by virtue of his attributes, his character as God. In verses 10 through 12, we see the sixth quote. It's from Psalm 102. And if you looked at Psalm 102, you would see that this psalm starts out with, Hear my prayer, O God. It's the prayer of the afflicted one. It's the prayer of one who is overwhelmed. And the quote here is from verses 25 to 27. And it's clear that the writer of Hebrews considered this a quote of God, that God was speaking to the psalmist in these words. You see this because in verses 8 and 9, he says, but of the son, he says, and there's the quote, and then in verse 10, and... You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And here's the thing. God answers the psalmist. The psalmist who is burdened and who is overwhelmed with this. Life on earth is short, but God is eternal. He says, you, O Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. He's the creator. The heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all will become like old like a garment. And like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed. I don't know about you, but I've got clothes that wear out. In fact, over the last few years, I've had a couple favorite shirts. And I would say, hey, anybody seen my, you know, my white shirt? And, and no one, mysteriously, no one in the family could, could tell me where that shirt went. It just, it just went into the black hole somewhere. It was gone. Now, when I was a little kid, I had these uh, blue corduroy pants, light blue corduroy pants. I had to wear them every day. My mom would have to wash them all the time. In fact, the knees wore out, and my mom put uh, patches on the knees. And I had these socks that I had to wear with those pants that were tan. I called them my oatmeal socks 
because they were warm and cozy. And I guess they reminded me of oatmeal. They're kind of a terry cloth type of a sock. But I'll tell you what, I wore those two, the, the, the socks and those light blue cords all the time till they wore out. Think about our lifetimes. Most of our clothes, we outlive them. They wear out before we outgrow them. At least we hope they will, right? Whatever the case, God says, the earth will perish. They're going to wear out like clothes. They're going to be changed. But Christ, in his immutability, big word there, his unchangeableness is eternal. He's unchanging. The seventh quote we see in verse 13, it's from Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110 is the, probably one of the most important Old Testament texts for the book of Hebrews. But basically it just says, sit at my right hand. And the question is, okay, which one of the angels did God ever say this to? The answer is, none of them. Sitting at the right hand, it's referring to a king's enthronement, and it carries with it a promise, a promise that enemies, all enemies, will be one day under their feet. That, that term, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, uh, came from the common practice in those days for the victor to basically place his foot on the neck of his conquered enemy. All of Christ's enemies, all who actively hate him, will be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus is sovereign. It's pointing to his sovereignty, his lordship. God never said to angels what he said to Jesus. Jesus is to be worshipped and obeyed both by us and angels. So what's the message for us today? Is it that, hey, this is uh, some theological, doctrinal stuff that's kind of good to know, and you can go away and say, you know what? I, I know a little bit more about angels now. Or, hey, I got a few things cleared up about angels, and we go our way and feel pretty good that we have a handle about the difference between God and angels. I don't think that's it. The message for us today is the fact that Jesus is better than anyone and anything. He's better. Now, what do you think the anticipated response was of the original hearers and readers of this passage? It was this, that knowing this truth, they would align themselves with it. That they would even repent if necessary of their worship of angels or their over-exalted view of angels, and that they would understand the role of angels in God's economy and worship Jesus and not angels. Because angels, to the Jewish mind, were over-exalted. To many, to the point of worship. Now, do I think that any of us here today are tempted to worship angels? Of course not. I don't think that's too likely. But think with me for a moment. Angels. Angels are good things 
that God created that were raised higher than God. People were tempted in those days to take something good God has made and raise it higher than God himself in their life. Our temptation is the same as theirs. You see, we're tempted to take good things God has made and raise them above God himself. Not sinful things, good things. See, with the sinful things, it's like, no brainer. Of course, you're not supposed to do that. It's clearly wrong. But there's these good things that somehow just get lifted gradually. And what happens is they functionally become higher than Jesus in our life. So what good things are over-exalted in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives? Well, to find out, you can ask yourself one question. It's a telling question. Just ask yourself this. What grid do I put everything through? What grid do I put everything through? As it comes through, what do I measure it by? Now, here's another question you could ask. Whose permission do I need before I make a decision? Now, I got a little sidebar for the kids in here, though. I'll tell you whose permission you need before you make a decision. Your parents. Uh, I will quote to you Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. So I don't want the kids to misread me on this one. Under God, the number one job of kids is to honor and to obey your parents. And I'll spread that out a little bit farther and say, if you are under your parents' roof and under their support, your number one job under God is to honor and respect and obey your parents. Well, let's get back to us, though. The rest of us, those of us who aren't kids. What about us? It's interesting the type of things that could be lifted higher than Jesus. I've been asking myself these two questions all week long, by the way. What is over-exalted in my life? You see, it can be, it can be a church or an organization. It can be a person. It can be a doctrinal position or a theological framework that you hold to. I dare say it could even be the Bible itself. It could be our family. Whatever the case, we are functionally denying Jesus' superiority and demoting him when we take what God has made and provided and raise it higher than God himself. When we give more credence to things that, or people that God has created than to Jesus. Now, theologically, none of us are going to say, hey, Jesus is lower than angels. Of course not. But we all f- often live 
as if Jesus is lower than a lot of things. I mean, we'd all probably say, hey, of course Jesus is, is better than anything. We'd say that. But if you're anything like me, you live different. What are we saying when we know God's standards? And then we go out and try to come as close to the line as we can. Living as close to the border between right and wrong as we deem possible. Or when we know God's word, but we, we find ways to twist it to make it say what we want it to say. And we'll excuse and support our lifestyle choices or our particular point of view. The cool thing is Jesus is exalted no matter what. No matter how we operate, Jesus is supreme. Jesus is exalted. Nothing is stronger than Jesus, right? We would all agree with that. Then why do we continue to go to wells that have no water? Why do we continue to go to mere facades that can never deliver the promises they make? To things of no profit. To things that really will only ruin and bankrupt us. Why? I know why. Because it's just like Mikey. We like it. We like it. Sin feels good. Sin appeases our hunger. Sin makes us feel better for a little while, temporarily. But then it comes back with a vengeance, and the cycle is, is repeated over again. Basically, if you think about it, we're all addicts. We're addicts. And wouldn't it be awesome if we could just get the message... Pleasure and pain is temporary. And so are man-made answers. Jesus, in John 8, said, If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus told us that we can't do anything apart from him. But we find ways to say, yeah, but life's too hard. And the temptation's too strong, and I'm too weak. We read in 1 Corinthians 10 that there is no temptation that has overtaken us that isn't common to man. And God's faithful. With that temptation, there will be provided a way of escape that we will be able to endure. You see, life doesn't become easier. It just becomes possible, whatever the trial. Do you know that God can call angels to your rescue? Do you know that? Look at verse 14. Aren't they all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? That God can call angels to our aid. If you're praying, he probably already has. If you're praying, he already has. How do I know that? You know, in Daniel chapter 10, 
Daniel had heard a message from the angel of God that was too much for a human to take. He was so burdened by what was going to happen that for three weeks he didn't eat. And the angel Gabriel was sent the moment he set his heart on seeking God. In fact, when the angel Gabriel came to him, he said, 21 days ago, I was sent, but the, but the king of, of the, uh, uh, the spirit of Persia, basically a, a, a fallen angel, was resisting him. Michael, the archangel, came and helped him. But God sent him the moment, the moment prayer began. Acts chapter 12, Peter. Peter's thrown in jail. And what do we read? We read that in verse 5, prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And what happened? Well, in verse 7, we read that the angel, God sent his angel, loose the chains, set him free. What happened in verse 11? Peter recounted that and said, God sent his angel to rescue me. It's interesting, though. We are often tempted to combat our sinful tendencies in our own strength. That's pride. That's like using a leaf blower to do your yard work. You just blow the problem somewhere else. We must go to Jesus to correct our twisted and warped thinking and actions. Jesus is better than anything. And nothing we will ever seek will satisfy us. Except for Jesus. Jesus is forever. And so is the cure he offers. See, he bought our cure with his precious blood. That precious blood cleanses us from all defilement over and over again. And it brings us to our senses so that we would see that Jesus is truly better than anything. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and praise you that you are forever. And so is the cure you offer. And we thank you that that cure was bought with precious blood, the blood of Christ. And we thank you for your cleansing. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to bring us again and again back to our senses so that we truly would see that Jesus is better. Lord, keep us from going to these places we go that are of no profit. Lord, keep us going to Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me. As we're dismissed, I just want to bring something up to you about tonight, about our communion service tonight. I know many of you uh, make it a practice to do that, but some of you don't even know what we do at the communion service. So I want to tell you, it's something that pictures humility and repentance and the exalted position of Jesus. We gather together right here in this room and we eat a simple meal. 
we fellowship around the tables and, and share what God has been doing in our lives. And then the men stay with the men and the ladies stay, go with the ladies and we wash one another's feet just like Jesus did in John chapter 13. And I'll tell you what, you can't do that and be at odds with your brother or your sister or your spouse. You've got to make sure everything's clear. And that reminds us of repentance. And then we come back together and we partake of the bread and the cup. We remember that whole picture of the meal and the washing of the feet and the bread and the cup, reminding us of humility, of repentance, and also of Jesus' exalted position among us and in our lives. So I encourage you to come back tonight at 6 and experience that, this wonderful time together. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.